Welcome to Teaching Channel Talks. As often as I can, I like to have conversations with fellow educators about issues that matter most in education. Today, my guests are Jan Birkins and Carrie Yates. They have collaborated on an incredible book that I think we're all going to want to learn more about as we take on the challenges of literacy in education. Jan and Carrie, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. We're glad to be here. Now, there's a lot of information in education these days about approaches for literacy. How do you all define or not define yourselves? Well, we think of ourselves as bridge builders, right, Carrie? I, I think that's a great way to describe our work. We came to this work um, that we're in, that we've been engaged with the last several years, really out of um, confusion ourselves about the kind of polarized conversations that that are the current context um, for us a lot of the time and just wanting to do a deep dive into this kind of conversation that includes labels like science of reading and balanced literacy and um, so yeah we're interested in some bridge building between those two communities and really um, kind of helping to make sense of the conversation um, we started off for ourselves. I mean, it was a selfish endeavor. We wanted to figure out for ourselves what was what was the truth and how would we manage our own um, defensiveness about some of what was being said in the field. Gary, you've worked as a school administrator, both at the school level and district level. So the title of the book, Shifting the Balance, to me, suggests that you've been in some spaces where people are slow to shift. Can you talk about that? resistance is real, hesitation is real, um, school change is hard. And I think as educators, we invest so much of ourselves into what we do, that when practices, when it feels like our practices are being attacked, it can really feel like kind of an attack on our very identity. But I also think that the idea of resistance and hesitation has it has a real positive side to it. And this kind of relates to that idea of active listening. I mean, if you're um, advocating for change in a school and you're getting a lot of pushback, that is information for you as a school leader, that somehow the needs of the educators have not been met. They don't have enough information. They don't have enough resources. You know, we've got to really invest in educators and we're believers that the best way to invest is um, through professional development and making sure that teachers have really accessible, respectful, but helpful professional development opportunities in order to, I mean, it's, it's always about engaging in the reflection of okay, what are my current practices and what are the opportunities for a shift that will make, in this case, literacy, reading and writing more accessible to the children I'm serving. But I think the challenge as a leader is to not just push back against resistance, but to try to lean into it and see what there is to learn from it, because that's going to help you on your journey. Jan, you have provided consulting for language arts at the state level. How does that inform your interest in helping people shift versus some dramatic change? Well, I was a I was a K-12 language arts consultant for a regional educational service agency in Georgia. 
And all of it really is so connected. All of literacy coaching work, even this work and the work at the RISA, all of it kind of points to this idea that shifting practices, um, you have to start somewhere, right? Like we say that all the time, momentum has to start somewhere. If we can just get something going. So for example, our fourth shift in the book is about sight word instruction. And really sight word instruction is one of the most straightforward things to make a shift around. And one of the ways to powerfully see the impact of these shifts in the classroom. And, and oftentimes, rather than, you know, um, thinking everything in our classroom has to change, let's try this and, and see if it encourages us to keep, keep going. And certainly, we would say there are few classrooms, we would think everything has to change, right? There's always something that is working, um, I would say, or the vast majority of times. But yes, the the work on a state level very much informed all of all of this. And you've crafted six specific ways to bring the science of reading into the balanced literacy classroom. That's the title of the book. Where should we go in discussing? I have to be honest. When when I dug into this, when Jan persuaded me to dig into this work. I dug in so that I could better defend my current practices. That was really my original goal. I wanted to be able to forward a a cleaner, better argument for some current practices. But what happened along the way is we dug into this research and we started to really see like, wow, there are some some practices that really we really got to take a strong second look at. And some of them are practices that were very near and dear to us. I'm a trained reader recovery teacher. So a lot of um, this work just, you know, really um, triggered sort of this crisis within myself almost because, right, you're really having to rethink almost the the sole foundation of, of yourself as a literacy teacher. But as we dug into the research, it became clear to us and we, we started as teachers love to do with chart paper and sticky notes. And it became clear to us there were sort of these six buckets Uh, six areas that we would need to ourselves reconsider and that we eventually encouraged other educators to reconsider in the early literacy classroom. Top of the list was reading comprehension right out of the gate. Yeah, I love this topic. We started right out of the gate with um, thinking about comprehension because one of the very valid concerns of educators, um, the educators with whom we work, was that there would be this zooming in kind of on skills to the neglect of comprehension. And it's a valid concern. And so chapter one establishes this foundation of language comprehension in particular, and really connects that to reading comprehension, because the reality is there is no reading comprehension mechanism in the brain. The reading comprehension mechanism, the reading comprehension actually piggybacks on or kind of hijacks the um, language comprehension part of the brain. So spoken language is really the heart of reading comprehension. And so for those who are really wanting to um leverage a tool to improve language comprehension and reading comprehension, we we lean into the work of Grover Whitehurst 
and um, his dialogic reading research and talk about extending conversations. You know, there are just like three little things you can do in a conversation um, to dramatically increase the vocabulary, the language of children. So for parents or who are reading aloud, who are reading aloud, just general conversations with children, this will make that improvement. And there is a one pager that tells them how to do that. That's free. Yeah. I mean, it's so important to us that educators who engage in work with us or read our book come away feeling like there are lots of practices to celebrate, some to refine and some to let go of. And I think in terms of language development, the practice to celebrate, hold on to, and even spiff up is read aloud, interactive read aloud with rich conversation and, you know, really robust texts. And since language comprehension is the heart of reading, um, once we kind of moved past that in chapter one, we went to chapter two intentionally builds on that as we start to take that language apart with phonemic awareness. You want to talk a little bit about phonemic awareness, Carrie? Yeah, and shift two is um, getting more intentional about phonemic awareness. And I don't think phonemic awareness is a new concept in most early literacy classrooms, but the opportunity here is to get really so much more intentional and to recognize that for children of any age who are still struggling to learn to read, insufficient phonemic awareness is the most common cause of word reading difficulties. So um, we, we need to um, make sure that we're, we're using some tools that support phonemic awareness, um, which is work that is completely unnatural to the brain and work that the brain never had to do before human beings invented written language. Um, one of the tools we introduce and really lean on for um, introducing students to the work of segmenting and blending sounds is just leaning into Elkonin boxes or sound boxes, because we want to make this very invisible abstract work of finding those little bitty sounds within words. Um, we want to make it more tangible and um, concrete. And so using these boxes that, you know, if you think of a rectangle divided into boxes and we're helping children to think about each sound in a word kind of having this individual spot in a box it's just a way to make it more concrete and multi-sensory for kids and they've got to be able to find those little sounds in words um, and understand eventually that those little sounds in words are what are are being represented by those graphemes in in written text mm -hmm. Which really leads into shift three and and shift phonics. three is about phonics. Phonics, yes. And probably we, um, for the sake of time, we we won't be able to elaborate on the other four the way we kind of did with one and two. But once we can hear those individual sounds, logically then comes three, representing them with graphemes. And so chapter three is about becoming more intentional about phonics instruction, which we know that phonics instruction I, I mean, really, I can't think of a classroom I've been in in the last 20 years that just didn't teach phonics. But the opportunity is, of course, to be more intentional about the ways we're going about it. Okay. And talk to me a little bit about high-frequency words or sight words. That's yeah. number four in the list. Yeah. So shift four is really gets to the heart of some really exciting science, mm -hmm. which is this idea of orthographic mapping. 
orthographic mapping is this in the brain process of figuring out how do those little sounds in words align to those graphemes or those those representations and shift four is about high frequency words and how do we turn them into sight words and it turns out that we probably this is a practice that lots of us have gotten wrong i know i got wrong because we think of this word learning as this visual activity we we try to get kids to memorize words we say oh you can't really decode that word you just have to you know memorize it you've got to know it by heart but it turns out that all word learning depends on the brain being able to do this job of orthographic mapping which is kind of the secret sauce and there are some simple ways that we can shift that instruction so that we are um, really pulling on all of these um, processing systems in the brain in quick and simple ways, but helping children to get to. We can't do orthographic mapping for kids, but again, using tools like Elkonin boxes, um, we can really help them to see the alignment between sounds and spellings, which is one important part of moving them to um, memory for for long-term storage um, and quick retrieval. And it's, and it's, you know, we zoom in on high frequency words, but really this is the way the brain learns to read any word. I mean, any word that I can read automatically is technically a sight word, whether it's high frequency or low frequency. And so once we know how to help children learn words, we've really unlocked a big part of reading. And if their language comprehension is in place, then we're off to the races. I suspect that the fifth shift of cueing systems is one that teachers are um, using more, but not labeling as a cueing system. Talk about that. What is a cueing system? And, and is there is there a possibility that teachers are, are more actively um, paying attention to them than they realize? Cueing has to do with what information is a child using in the moment of figuring out a word um, to arrive at that word? And so after chapter four, where we've really solidified, here's how children learn words, the issue is that we've been historically, we as in Carrie and I and a lot of other educators have historically been teaching children to figure out words using things that don't align with the science that leads up to chapter, to shift forward, what we know about how children learn words. So if right. I ask lots children- Lots of different ways to figure out words, right? There are like lots of different ways. ways to figure out words. Right. But really the only way that helps children learn words and turn those into sight words is if they do the orthographic mapping that Carrie was just talking about, which requires- looking at those relationships between the sounds and the spellings or paying attention to those in that alphabetic principle. And so five is triggering for um, a lot of people. It was certainly, it, we put it in chapter, we put it late in the book on purpose because we wanted teachers to really understand the science that builds up to it. And we really wanted to have established kind of who we are and some safety for readers before they got to kind of that chapter. It's about teaching children to decode rather than to, in, to decode, to read the words rather than figure out the words in lots of different ways. I suspect that chapter six gets pretty specific in its recommendations. Talk about text selection. How much 
autonomy do teachers have in selecting text? How, uh, how do they prioritize? Where can they go to make good decisions for their learners? You know, chapter six, um, it, it follows and sort of piggybacks on chapter five. And the, and the heart of chapter six is about selecting instructional texts for the most beginning readers. And so one of the things we explore there is the advantages and disadvantages of predictable simple predictable texts with repeated language patterns versus um, decodable texts that are closely aligned to the phonics skills children are learning. Um, and so it is, it's a nudge toward making more space for decodable texts to feed that, um, that whole experience we were talking about a moment ago where kids are processing lots of text and they are reading words that they can decode because if you're going to change your prompting practices but you still have words like you know giraffe and umbrella and ocean in front of kindergartners who are working to decode cbc words it's not going to work to prompt them to sound it out but if you put text in front of them that they can actually read the words then they're going to learn to trust print and they're going to they're going to grow in their ability to decode but those texts need to be necessarily simple to get kids going with reading. The other important text selection, read aloud, shared reading, we, we need to really lean into those. And it kind of brings us full circle to one to support oral language development, knowledge building, you know, understanding of rich language structures. And so the chapter is primarily about those instructional texts for beginning readers with a reminder that don't put all your eggs in the basket of those texts. <laughs> you have to have this rich plan of what other sorts of texts you're gonna make accessible as a teacher through read aloud and shared reading. And again, to that point, we, we have to continually remind ourselves and the educators we work with that this is heart work and head work, and we have to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. We offer um, these six commitments in the beginning of our book, and we've got them also just as a download if people want them. They apply to any kind of school change work and um, really any kind of, any I don't know, kind of personal change. lives as well, right? When yeah. you're engaged in tricky and maybe even sort of polarizing conversations or tricky work, these commitments we made to ourselves and each other at the beginning of this work because we knew that it was emotionally tricky work. Mm -hmm. The work of reflecting on practices and, you know, sometimes saying, you know, that thing I used to be so committed to, I've completely changed my mind about that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the work we're engaged in is saying that quite publicly. I mean, our book says that quite publicly to the world, mm -hmm. um, but we know it's hard work, um, but important work on behalf of kids. Yeah. I'd like to say thank you to both of you for letting me help you say that publicly to the world. Yeah. Carrie and Jan, our conversation is just what educators need right now. Carrie Yates and Jan Birkins are co-authors of Shifting the Balance, Six Ways to Bring the Science of Reading into the Balanced Literacy Classroom. And I can tell you from today's conversation that this is all about being brain friendly and science aligned. 
their approaches to literacy instruction are just what we need today. So fellow educators, please enjoy the book, challenge your own practices, and let's see where we can move forward in supporting learners across the country. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please follow on whatever listening app you use. It will help more educators to find us, and I'd sure appreciate it. If you want to check the show notes, please do to look at all of the things that we referenced during our conversations. We're at www.teachingchannel.com slash podcast. Thank you. I'll see you again soon. Mm -hmm.